Good morning, everyone. Uh, our Bible reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through to 20. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee and proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kate. Well, I am excited to be here with you, excited to uh, open these words for Mark, page one of his gospel. If I'm uh, totally honest, I have read page one of a lot more books than I've gotten to the last page of, uh, but you can learn a lot from the first page and even uh, the first sentence. And the gospel of Mark, it has a great first sentence, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, there's no introduction to the author or who he's writing his book to, but Mark does give us a really clear topic sentence. Welcome to the beginning of the good news, the good news about Jesus, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. In his first words, they're actually a really big uh, claim, big words, and they give us a sense of how big and important uh, this story will be. We're opening up a book that is about Jesus. Uh, it's written by a man named John Mark. Uh, we know that Mark was a companion of Peter. Uh, Peter was a disciple of Jesus, so of course he was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. And Mark prepared this book from... 
from Peter's testimony and gathering other uh, first-hand accounts of Jesus' life. That's one of the earliest gospels uh, written within the lifetime of some people who knew Jesus personally, uh, around 50 or 60 AD. So this is a historical account. Uh, it's a biography, you could say, uh, but it's not just impartial history or kind of a simple record of facts. This account, it's written by someone who confidently believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. We're told that up front. So this book, it presents Jesus so that people can see him clearly and put their faith in him. This is good news that's meant to create a response, a change. Uh, it's meant to change your life. Um, if you like graphic novels or uh, young adult fiction, uh, you'll like Mark. Or uh, if you're one of the people who's more likely to kind of watch uh, 20, 90-second Instagram reels rather than one 30-minute Netflix episode, this is the gospel for you. It is fast-paced and punchy and filled with kind of real-worthy uh, scenes of Jesus' ministry. In Mark, we learn about who Jesus is uh, from his own words, but even more so from what he does as he carries out his work on earth. And over and over, Mark keeps presenting his readers with Jesus and his words and his actions so that by the end of the book, you have to make a decision. Is this claim true? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? Or who is this man, Jesus? Uh, but let's get back to the first sentence. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Good news here, it's the same word that we use uh, as gospel, as in the gospel of Mark. It's a way of saying this news is good, uh, but it's also uh, more than that. Not just it's not bad news, it's good, but this is massive news. Like uh, front page, first headline news, or or kind of even bigger, like historic, world-changing, life-changing type news. In Mark's time and place under Roman rule, uh, a new emperor on the throne would be announced as gospel, good news. Or among the Greeks, uh, it was used for announcing victory in battle, as in good news, the war's over, peace is here. This is like uh, if the Matildas won the World Cup, or hopefully when they win the World Cup next in 2026, that's good news. Or maybe uh, like the coronation of King Charles with tens of millions of people watching the coverage, that's massive news. So when Mark says the beginning of the gospel, he's getting ready to lay out some really big news, really good news not about war or politics or sport, about Jesus, and we should listen. The beginning for Mark is an interesting spot. It's not Jesus' birth or a genealogy. The beginning of the good news is here, at uh, the arrival of Jesus at the side of a river in Judea. This is the start of Jesus' ministry, his baptism, his temptation, his proclamation of the kingdom and calling of the first disciples. But it's a beginning that's immediately set in context, set in the context of God's work and promises in the Old Testament. 
set in the context of prophecy and promise, of waiting, anticipating, and preparing. I grew up in a house uh, with a lot of books, and especially my mum is a bit of a kind of reading addict, and uh, the kind of perfect example of this is this habit that she has where if you leave a book out, like on the dining table or something with a bookmark in it, she had this habit of picking it up and starting reading, not from the beginning, but from someone else's bookmark, reading from the bookmark to the end, and then if it was good enough, she'd read from the start to the bookmark. So she read the whole book, but just not in the right order. <laughs> to be honest, I mean, I do the same thing sometimes with movie series. I've kind of jumbled up uh, a number of those. But I wonder what it does to the plot, or especially to the kind of foreshadowing, the uh, clues and hints that are laid out about what's coming next, what's unfolding. For many of us, we read the Bible a bit like my mum reads those poor books. We start uh, in the middle, in the second half, uh, the New Testament, or here in Mark, before we go back to the beginning. And that's okay, but it does mean sometimes we get the reveal before we get the suspense. So here, Mark starts his kind of second half, his second beginning, by sending us back to the foreshadowing, to the prophecy. Messiah is already one of those words that sends us back. Messiah means anointed king, anointed one. It's a promise that's weaved through the Old Testament that God would send his promised king, a king who would rescue Israel and rule God's kingdom with peace and justice. And Mark, he adds a second title, the son of God, not just a king anointed by God, but a divine king. So then, Mark, he proves that this news about Jesus is a continuation of the same story that God's been telling across history and scripture by quoting from scripture. <clears throat> in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark cites the prophet Isaiah, uh, but there's actually an amalgamation of two prophecies here from Malachi and Isaiah 40. They're prophecies about a messenger, uh, one going ahead, preparing the way. So then the question is, who are they preparing the way for? The interesting thing is, in these prophecies, the messenger is not going ahead of the Messiah, the promised king figure, it's actually a messenger who goes ahead of God himself, the Lord Almighty. Now, that might not uh, feel like an important kind of twist or clue for us who know uh, the ending, but God's people, they are expecting a Messiah, and they're expecting a day when the Lord himself comes, but they aren't expecting God himself to come as Messiah. In fact, Mark is setting up a theme that we'll see throughout the gospel, that Jesus is both the one who's promised and anticipated, but he's also new and unexpected. God's people, they're waiting for a Messiah, and they're waiting for the coming of the Lord. 
but they're not expecting the Messiah to be the Lord God himself. And they certainly aren't expecting him to look or act or talk like Jesus of Nazareth. So then it's kind of against all of that expectation and background that we reach verse 9, Jesus arrives. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, He's baptized in the river like everyone else, but uh, his baptism is not like everyone else's. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is a huge moment. There are people kind of waiting in line for their turn to get baptized. There's some people on, you know, on the bank of the river dripping wet. They've just come out. Maybe there's someone holding a towel, uh, waiting for Jesus. They'll hand it off to him as he comes out of the water. But instead of rushing to dry off, when Jesus comes out of the water, the sky opens, the spirit descends, and a voice declares, you are my son. It's huge. This is an amazing picture of the Trinity, of God the Father speaking from above and the Holy Spirit descending on the Son. It's a witness of the Father and the Spirit about Jesus, the Son of God. And this kind of momentous event is also steeped in Old Testament illusions. It's worth working through them in your small groups or in your own time. There's a link here to Psalm 2, and again, God's chosen king. But I want to look for a moment at another anticipated figure from Isaiah, the servant. In Isaiah, across four passages, a picture is built up of a servant of the Lord, a savior figure who brings mercy and justice but also a saviour who suffers and is mistreated in order to bring redemption. The declaration of the Lord in Mark 1, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, is anticipated by the declaration of the Lord to the servant in Isaiah. Here's Isaiah 42. Here is my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So here at the, at the baptism of Jesus and the beginning of his ministry, we actually see all of these promises beginning to come together. The promise of a Messiah King who will rescue and rule, the promise of the Lord himself coming to bring justice and the promise of a suffering servant who bears sin and pain and brings redemption. Like paths converging or puzzle pieces fitting together, Jesus says the time has come and all these different threads meet. The good news is historic, world-changing, life-changing type news because Jesus' arrival is the culmination of all these promises. Jesus is the one the Jews have been waiting for, but who they find it hard to see clearly. Jesus has arrived to fulfill 
all those promises and prophecies because every promise of God is yes in him. Now, uh, just as soon as Jesus arrives, he gets to work. uh, And there are three big things that we can learn as Jesus starts his ministry about his ministry. And there's more to come later in Mark. Firstly, Jesus has come to defeat the adversary. Secondly, Jesus has come to bring in the kingdom. And thirdly, Jesus has come to call people to himself. So number one, Jesus has come to defeat the adversary. We're told in verse 12 that at once, immediately, at once after this astonishing baptism, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The name here for Satan is the word for adversary, God's enemy, our enemy. Jesus' battle with and conquest against evil and evil spirits is something we're going to see unfold as we continue in Mark. But here we have little more than this introduction of Satan into the story. Jesus is tempted by Satan, uh, like the Israelites tested in the wilderness after the Exodus, except they fail that test and grumble and sin, but Jesus doesn't. He encounters temptation, but does not sin. But Jesus hasn't come just to resist the enemy or kind of withstand temptation. It's more. From 1 John 3, uh, we read, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. From the very beginning of history, from the first judgment of sin in Genesis 3, God's people have been awaiting one who will crush the serpent's head. God's people have been waiting for the one who will stand up to Satan and defeat the adversary. And Jesus has arrived to do that work, to overpower sin and evil and death, to fight and win. The second thing that we learn about Jesus' ministry uh, is in verse 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, we uh, finally hear Jesus speak, and he says this. He proclaims the good news of God, saying, the time has come The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God. I don't know if you kind of noticed this, but this is a really abrupt end to John's ministry. He's only just been introduced to us, and now he's in prison, and Jesus' ministry is started. There's no kind of handover from John to Jesus. He doesn't get to choose to retire and have a farewell party and get some flowers. It's not until chapter 6 that we even get any context for this arrest and, as it turns out, execution of John. We don't see any more of his preaching and baptisms, and his part of the story is kind of strangely unresolved. But uh, Mark is making a point with this abrupt goodbye to John, because John was sent to prepare the way to say the time is coming, but the arrival of Jesus means the time is here. John is from the time of promises and prophecy and anticipation, and Jesus brings the time of fulfillment 
the kingdom of God. So why is the kingdom of God near? It's because God's king is here. A good friend of mine works uh, uh, for the organization that puts on the Royal Melbourne Show, and she looks after the equestrian competitions and um, also chickens. Uh, It's the Royal Melbourne Show. It's put on by the Royal Agricultural Society. But I don't really understand what is so kind of regal about an agricultural society or uh, what makes a chicken competition royal worthy. Uh, But it was the National Agricultural Society until Her Majesty the Queen bestowed the title royal on it. It's not some regal chickens that make it regal or royal. They aren't special. It's the Queen who made it royal. Why is the Royal Melbourne Hospital royal but the Epworth isn't? Because the Queen says so. And why has the kingdom of God come near? It's because God's king is here. Now, there's a lot more to say about the meaning of the kingdom of God, and it's going to be developed and uncovered more as we see Jesus' ministry and teaching in Mark, as we see the mercy and justice and power of Jesus' ministry, and as we listen to his teaching about the kind of hidden and unexpected nature of the kingdom. But for now, as Jesus announces the kingdom of God has come near, we can understand that God's kingdom means God's rule, established by God's ruler, Jesus the Messiah. So we see Jesus has come to defeat Satan, the adversary. Jesus has come to bring in the kingdom And thirdly, Jesus has come to call people to himself. In his first proclamation of his message, Jesus doesn't just announce the arrival of the kingdom. He calls for a response. Repent and believe the good news. And then Jesus begins to call his disciples. From verse 15, the time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The announcement of good news, it demands a response, actually a change. The Greek word here translated repent, it means to change one's mind. But it's connected to a much bigger concept of repentance that's been built up through scripture. The concept of turning around, of turning back. Jesus He calls for a response, a change. He calls people to turn from one thing to another. Repent and believe. John the Baptist has already preached repentance of sins as a preparation for the arrival of the Lord. John, he wants people to see Jesus clearly and trust him. And to do that, they need to leave their sin behind. They need to turn away from it. And Jesus calls not just to turn away, but to turn towards. Believe the gospel and turn towards Jesus. When we turn to Jesus, we leave our sin behind. Not just the bad things we've done, but the ways that we've rejected God in our hearts and failed to recognize and love the God who loves us. 
And when we turn towards Jesus, we recognize that we need him. We aren't good people without him, and we choose to trust him. And trusting him changes us. As we turn and repent, Jesus changes our hearts and changes our lives. In this first page of Mark, Jesus starts his work of asking people to trust him by calling four ordinary men to follow him. And they do. Verse 16, Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of a big lake, uh, and he sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew, and they're fishing. And Jesus calls out, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Then a little further along, he sees two more brothers, James and John, who are with their father in a boat preparing nets. And without delay, he calls them, and they left their father in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, fishing was a big industry in that day. There were 16 ports on that lake and kind of potentially hundreds of fishermen that day. And Jesus chooses four and says, come follow me. It's a bit like walking along the kind of temp fencing at the edge of the Westgate Tunnel construction site and looking at all the tradies and choosing a couple of asphalters and maybe a site engineer and a digger operator and saying, come, follow me. It's odd. Now, in Jewish communities at the time, there was a tradition of rabbis, teachers, having disciples, followers. But this scene is highly unusual. The normal path to become a disciple, a kind of aspiring student would choose a teacher they wanted to follow and approach them. The rabbi would have a kind of entrance exam for them to sit, test their knowledge on the Torah and theology and tradition, and then presumably only accept the kind of best candidates. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, they don't approach him, he chooses them. And he doesn't choose the best and brightest. He doesn't go and find a prominent rabbi and kind of poach his students, already uh, trained up to follow quietly and not cause any trouble. No. He chooses and calls ordinary people who are busy doing ordinary jobs and says, come follow me. He calls them to himself. I mean, it reads as quite strange, right? Jesus doesn't perform a miracle. He doesn't seem to prove who he is or give some persuasive speech. He just says, come follow me. I mean, the disciples, they are going to see miracles and hear persuasive speeches. But here, they're just asked to trust and to follow. And they take the risk. They leave their nets behind, their fish, their father, and trust and follow Jesus. When they don't know much yet, when they're busy with their jobs and their family, they trust and follow Jesus. Now, my question is, what might it look like for us to trust and follow, even if we don't yet understand it all, even before we see miracles and hear persuasive speeches? What might it look like for us to leave behind fishing nets and family? And what might it look like for us to be 
called to a new purpose, like Simon and Andrew called to become fishers of men. I uh, love hearing stories of how people became Christians, of how they heard about who Jesus is and responded in faith. And one thing that's always true is that it takes a risk of faith. Nobody has all of their questions answered before they have to decide, will I trust in Jesus? And then it's amazing how much you keep learning as you follow him. These fishermen, they have a lot to learn that is going to become abundantly clear as we read on. But today, they know enough to step out in faith and trust Jesus. It's an example for us. As we follow Jesus, we face things that we don't understand. There are questions that I still have for God, are questions about the Bible, what does this mean, why did you say this? Questions about life, why did this happen, why didn't this happen? But the best place to grow in knowledge and understanding is alongside Jesus, with Jesus alongside me. So we can follow the example of the disciples and choose to trust and follow. When you encounter things that are hard to understand, keep choosing trust. And if you're someone who's still thinking about who Jesus is and asking questions about what Christians believe, let me encourage you to keep asking questions and finding answers. But also let me say, if you have questions still and things that you don't understand, you can still decide to trust Jesus now. You can pray to him and say, I want to follow you. I have questions. I'm still learning. But I want to repent and I want to believe. It is worth choosing trust and stepping out in faith. When the fishermen leave to follow Jesus, it's kind of shocking. They uh, just walk away in the middle of a work day, leaving their nets and, more shockingly, leaving their father. I wonder what this passage would say uh, if this happened today. And Jesus said, come follow me. And Bridget left her laptop and her unread emails and followed him. Or uh, Jesus said, come follow me. And Mike left his bike and Ale holding Penny and followed him. I mean, should the disciples leave their nets on the beach and their dad in the boat to follow Jesus, it seems wildly irresponsible. But they don't leave their nets because they're heavy and their father because he's a nuisance, always telling him they're folding the sails wrong. They don't leave their work because it's unimportant. They leave because Jesus is more important. And this is a principle that should shape our lives. Our lives are filled with important things, with family and work and friendships and responsibilities. And they can compete with each other for our time and attention. And we make compromises all the time to uh, live near the kids' school but have a long commute, to catch up with a friend but have to stay up late to catch up with study. And 
following Jesus can become one of those priorities fighting for our attention. But Jesus is more important. Don't leave Jesus to last, to try and fit into a busy life. And don't risk drifting away because you didn't prioritize practices that protect your faith. Fiercely protect time spent in God's word, time in prayer, time gathered as God's people because those things will fiercely protect your faith. Lastly, notice how the seeds of sending out are laid even in the first call. Follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Following Jesus for these fishermen, it calls them to a new vocation because it gives them a new purpose. Now, following Jesus, it may or may not mean a new vocation for you. Uh, For me, there did come a time when uh, trusting Jesus and stepping out in faith meant leaving a good job and testing a call to a new vocation. That may or may not be your story. But if you're a Christian, you have been called to a new purpose. You've been given a new purpose as Jesus invites you into his mission in the world. Following Jesus gives a new purpose to your work as you work as one, working for the Lord, and as a blessing and witness to others. Following Jesus gives a new purpose to your relationships as you love others as Christ loves you. And following Jesus gives a new purpose to your life as he invites you to be part of calling people to himself as we proclaim the good news through word and deed and share the hope that we have. Because the good news that we have is life-changing. Jesus is calling people to himself. He's calling you to himself and inviting you to respond. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the new purpose and hope and life that we have in Jesus. I pray that this would change every aspect of our lives as we follow the true King, the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.